The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If they see weakness, they will continue to push. And so that's why I credit the Czechs for pushing back hard, because we've learned over the last five to eight years that these small steps don't deter Vladimir Putin. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 27th, 2021. The Russian GRU Unit 29155 is in the news again. Czech authorities pinned the blame on it for a series of explosions in 2014 that killed two people, and then expelled an unusually high number of Russian diplomats, dramatically reducing Russia's diplomatic presence in Czechia and, perhaps, harming its intelligence efforts across Central Europe. To talk about it, I sat down in the Virtual Jungle studio with Michael Schwartz and John Seifer. Michael is an investigative reporter with the New York Times, based at the United Nations, but with plenty of experience reporting on Russian activities across Europe. His most recent reporting has shed important light on the events of this shadowy Russian military intelligence unit. John Seifer is the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment and a retired 28-year veteran of the CIA with significant experience against the Russian target. We discussed this Russian military unit's active measures. We addressed Putin's motivations and possible miscalculations. And we talked about intelligence collection against and cooperation to thwart this unit, along with the bigger picture of Western relations with Russia. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 27th. Explosions, expulsions, and explanations of Russian active measures. Let's start this by going back a few years to set the stage for the new developments. Michael, you came on the podcast last year to talk a bit about Unit 29155 of Russian military intelligence and how it developed and, more importantly, what it was doing across Europe. Uh, As a reminder, this came up in the wake of a Russian law passed some 15 years ago that allowed Russian intelligence services to conduct direct action overseas. So give us that background. What is Unit 29155 and what kinds of things had it been doing in Europe during the past 15 years? Sure, David. The unit is um, 
uh, as you mentioned, uh, it is a part of Russia's military intelligence agency, which is known as the GRU. And it is made up of individuals primarily with heavy experience in special operations have been involved in the various wars that Russia has fought uh, over the last several decades, including in Afghanistan and more recently in Ukraine. And what intelligence services around the world began to discover just about in the last decade or so were these operations that resembled the operations that, that military intelligence services would carry out during war times. We're talking about assassinations, we're talking about sabotage, but they were happening in peacetime. And it's not clear to me, not having access to a lot of classified information, when the uh, assessments of intelligence services ban- began to congeal and they began to identify this as a specific discernible group But what really drew the world's attention to this unit's activities is uh, in 2018, a group that uh, were members of this unit traveled to uh, the UK and carried out this famous poisoning of a former Russian spy named Sergei Skripal with uh, a nerve agent called Novichok. And it's at that time that uh, I think intelligence services around the world began really taking a hard look at this group and what they were up to, what they discovered is that the, this group has been carrying out operations all around the world. Uh, they were involved in a coup attempt in Montenegro. They've been involved in several assassination attempts using various substances similar to uh, the Novichok uh, nerve agent that was used in the UK. And basically the goal, according to Western intelligence services, is, is to basically sow chaos uh, in the West as a way of eating at the edges and the and undermining Western society. That is a useful overview. I suspect we'll be coming back to various pieces of it. Am I correct that this unit may also have been involved in that story we had last year about the potential bounties on U.S. and coalition troops in Afghanistan? That's correct. And, and what our reporting has shown is that the, this group was one of the leading actors in that program. And recently, the Biden administration came out and provided a little bit more detail about the the level of confidence in that assessment. And there's been some discrepancy in that from the beginning with uh, the CIA assessing that as much more credible than, uh, than other U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies. But as far as as far as we understand, the, uh, the, the intelligence remains unchanged from when we reported about that case uh, last summer. Thanks. John, place this activity of this unit in the last 15 years in the larger context of U.S.-Russia relations. How does this relate to Ukraine, to skirmishes with U.S. administrations past and present and the overall way that the Russians see the world situation and how it's developed. Yeah, to put it in context, it's it's very similar to, you know, what Vladimir Putin grew up with with the KGB. These activities are very consistent with patterns that, you know, we've saw through the Cold War. But certainly since 2008, when Vladimir Putin gave a speech in Munich, which was quite aggressive towards the West. And and clearly since 2012, when he became president again, and at the time there was protests in the streets, which he blamed very much on Hillary Clinton and the State Department and the West, Putin's 
foreign policy has been increasingly aggressive. His stance against the U.S. and the West has been this politics of grievance, this and he's sort of created this narrative of Russia as the anti-West, you know, anti-immigrant, decadent West, these type of things. And increasingly, his politics and his foreign policy can be defined, you know, again, in a Cold War way as sort of political warfare, information warfare, or as the KGB used to call it, active measures. And these are the things we saw, you know, in 2016 and, and consistently since, which is sort of subversion and disinformation and provocations and, and, and using the tools of the intelligence services, like Michael explained, against the West. And assassination has always been a part of this. And it was, a, frankly, a part of it through the, through the Cold War as well. They would use assassination, what they called hunting enemies of the people, to kill off people both internally and externally that were, were seen as enemies of, of the Kremlin. And so, you know, since certainly since 2012, we've, we've seen a lot of this. It's been very anti-West, focused against the United States. But it also has a it has an internal dynamic as well as a foreign policy dynamic. And internally, Putin, you know, has to use the West and use the U.S. as a straw man to blame for any economic woes that he might be facing. He's created this siege mentality, the notion that Russia is under siege from the West and others. Which is which is handy domestically to sort of have an enemy to to focus on internally, and in the recent in the recent months, actually, this has gotten worse, and he seems to be under greater pressure. There's been protests in Russia, there's been instability in in Belarus, as we all know about Navalny efforts to to murder Navalny, and that he's since been put in prison. Uh, the polls seem to have been going down, so a lot of this aggression that we've seen consistently since you know, 2014 for sure, we're seeing it sort of ratcheted up nowadays. John, let's play this out a little bit because one might think that a strategic thinker like Putin would say at a time when he, he's engaged in Ukraine and the Ukrainian situation has, has evolved, of course, but at a time he's engaged in Ukraine and he's trying to keep the Europeans from coalescing around support from Ukraine, that it might not be a good time to be pissing off the individual governments there. And whether it's conducting assassinations on British soil or conducting potential coups in the Balkans or doing the same kinds of things in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, that this could be seen as counter to the overall objective of what he's doing in, in Ukraine. So how do you balance that? How do you think, did, did Putin simply anticipate that the countries of Western Europe in particular would not react strongly to attempted assassinations on their own soil? Yeah, I think there's different levels to this. I, I don't think he intended for all these to have been caught. So, you know, reporting by, like Michaels and reporting by places like Bellingcat and ultimately reporting this come from our, our DNI, Director of National Intelligence, you know, has uncovered a lot of things in the last five or six years, many of which were not meant to be uncovered, even though, it, you know, afterwards, and you look at them in retrospect, they often look sloppy and, and, and you, you assume that maybe they were meant to be uncovered. But I, I don't think they were. Also, I don't necessarily see Putin as some sort of grand strategist. I, I think, you know, this notion that, you know, he's Russian and therefore playing chess to our checkers is, is the wrong way to look at it. He's more like what he actually is, a judo fighter. He's someone looking for weaknesses in the West and uses asymmetric means to, 
to strike and, and hit at our weaknesses. It's constant series of sort of pushbacks and things like that against us. And, and again, he grew up in the KGB and a lot of the things that he is doing are these, you know, using his intelligence services to support, you know, right wing and violent groups in the West, you know, assassinations, support to groups in Syria, you know, the Taliban, Ukraine, and these type of things. So yes, he he's antagonized the West and it makes good sense to ask, what is the end game here? What, how do you think if you're sort of a, you know, medium economic power, that if you antagonize all the other sort of larger economic powers that you're going to, to benefit from that. But I think you need to look at him more as, as a, you know, a typical dictator, you know, always looking for sort of trade-offs and to sort of trying to keep, you know, striking one day and then trying to respond and making sure he sort of keeps in power and, and keeps the people around him happy because there's a sense of corruption in, in Russia where he has to keep the cronies around him happy and uses the West as sort of a, straw man to blame for things to try to tell his population that the you know economic problems are not his fault and so it's 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 a constant balancing act that that Putin's involved with and now if you as you look back and see some of the things that his intelligence services have done many of which probably were were set in motion you know years before and then come come out later when you put it all together you wonder what what what's it aiming toward what's the point and i think the point is just to try to keep his enemies at bay, to keep them off balance. And I don't know that there's a much more grand strategy to any of this. Okay. So that's the situation where it was, let's say, a couple of months ago. Michael, you've done some reporting on a revelation that came out from the, the government in Czechia, talking about something that had happened now, gosh, going back, what, seven or eight years, or maybe even further back. Talk through what the Czech government revealed and how it connects to someone that you've talked to who had been a attempted victim of this GRU unit before. Sure. The, the Czech government, the Czech prime minister came out two weekends ago and, and really unexpectedly announced that a series of bombings that occurred at an arms and ammunition depots in the Czech Republic seven years ago were the result of uh, a special operation by this unit, 29155. And, and, and in fact, the authorities there identified two individuals that the British government uh, has accused and in fact indicted in the, uh, the Skripal poisoning in 2018 as being the primary executors of this operation. And uh, the Czech government went even further and said that the, the, the target of these attacks was not the, the Czech Republic itself, but the weapons that were being stored, weapons and ammunition that were being stored at these depots, hmm. which belonged to a uh, Bulgarian arms manufacturer by the name of Emelian Gebrev. And I've been uh, tracking the, uh, the fortunes of, of Mr. Gebrev for a few years now, uh, about six months after these explosions occurred in the Czech Republic, and this was in October and December 2014. About six months after that first explosion, Mr. Gebrev uh, fell ill with what uh, was originally diagnosed as 
food poisoning and uh later only only after the revelations of the of the scripal poisoning in 2018 did it come to be determined that he was in fact poisoned by this same group of individuals that poisoned mr scripal that were now being named and blamed as behind these bombings or, or explosions of uh, arms depots in the czech republic let me pause you there because this is not a name that most people are familiar with this gebrev who is he and why would he have been of interest to this unit at the same level as somebody like a Skripal? No, he's he's not a well-known guy. And it's what makes his the, 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 the attention that he's getting from this unit completely baffling. There's some sense that we understand the motivation for going after Skripal. He spent, first of all, a former GRU officer himself, and he also spent about a decade spying for the british uh against his his comrades in russia so you know it seems to be a pretty clear-cut case of revenge here with gebrev it was never clear he's a uh, he's a fairly big time arms manufacturer we- ammunition manufacturer actually in bulgaria but he's he's certainly not uh well known he certainly hadn't been on anybody's radar prior to the poisoning in 2015 and even years after the poisoning in 2015 the the case never got any attention and it only started getting attention after british uh officials approached their uh bulgarian counterparts apparently with information linking this poisoning in 2015 to the 28 poisoning on uk territory of of this former spy scripal and and it's always been something of a mystery why he uh, uh, was a target of this of this unit, but finally this week, after a lot of cajoling, uh, I was able to get him to acknowledge for the first time something that we had suspected for some time that he had been at the start of the war between the Ukrainian government forces and uh, separatists backed by Russia in 2014, uh, selling ammunition to uh, to Ukrainian forces through a deal uh-huh. he had struck. Uh, in about mid to late 2014. Well, that connects the dots. And it actually reminds me of one of the other cases that you and I have talked about, about the, the, the gentleman in Western Ukraine who was working, I believe, as an electrician or something like that at a prison who had been targeted by this unit. And it turns out his connection back was something many years before as I believe involvement in the Chechen War and not even in a major role. It was the it was the George the Georgian War actually. The Georgian War, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And it points out that this unit it, it, it now seems to be having a a mission set that includes going after not not the leaders of certain movements or areas that have opposed Russian interests, but minor mid-level functionaries who have either funneled weapons or flown planes or or just done anything that annoyed them in one of these areas. I think I think though that in the case of Gebrev, first of all we don't know the full extent of his activities with Ukraine. Uh, Bellingcat came out with another one of its uh, stellar reports today indicating that his supplies were significant amount. Mm. His supplies to Ukraine at the start of the war um, represented a significant boost to their war fighting capabilities. And you have to remember in 2014, 
the war took everyone by surprise. Russia, Russian forces quickly moved in and seized Crimea and instigated a, uh, a separatist conflict that, that pretty much has torn Ukraine in two. The Ukrainian military, meanwhile, had long been neglected. It was corrupt. It was in a state of complete disarray going up against separatists who were being supplied by advanced Russian weaponry. And so there was a real scramble uh, at the start of the war by Ukraine to get a hold of weapons and quickly revamp its military. And if Gebrev was a key element to allowing Russia to mount an effective defense, you can really see why he would be a target of this unit. Yeah, I think this is really a, a sign, really, of Putin's weakness, if anything else. You know, targeting people like Gebrev and even Skripal, you could even argue Navalny, you know, it's almost as if he's using instruments of state power to go after his personal enemies. And, you know, we all know that that autocratic regimes that rule by fear, they live in fear. And the sense that he's going after essentially these pygmies, these small targets to kill them, to include in other people's countries, you know, suggests that Putin is, you know, more worried about these things than he probably should be. And you can argue, in fact, that I think Putin has made things much worse for himself. You know, look at Navalny. Navalny, yes, he was an opposition figure, but he wasn't, he didn't have a huge following in Russia. He was really no political threat to Putin, but now he's essentially made him that by trying to murder him. And people like Gebrev and these things, yes, they're a mild irritant. Maybe they were going to give some weapons to Ukraine that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you weren't attacking Ukraine, you wouldn't have to worry about their weapons. I think he's made things worse for himself. And and I think it does show his sort of pettiness and weakness in his KGB background. Let's talk about one of those specific responses, Michael, which is when this news came out from Prague uh, about the responsibility for these explosions that did did kill a couple of people back in the day, the, the response was the expulsion of Russian diplomats. And I think in two rounds, the Czech government has now expelled most of the Russian diplomatic presence in the country. And Russia, of course, has responded by expelling some others. Is that right? Have you seen anything else that's going on other than the expulsions as a result of this revelation? Well, there's there, there, first of all, the expulsions, the expulsions were incredibly dramatic, and I would say pretty shocking, considering the Czech Republic's position in the world as a, as a, you know, it is, a, it is a country while in the EU, definitely within Russia's orbit. And uh, the Czech Republic has long tried to walk a line when it came to relations with Russia, you know, stepping up when it needed to step up, but also trying to accommodate Russia in many ways. There's a lot of um, Russian business in the Czech Republic. And for them to essentially unilaterally, as a result of these, these explosions, essentially decimate Russia's diplomatic presence in their country, while, uh, uh, you know, it should be pointed out, while also ensuring that their own diplomatic presence in Russia is decimated, is a pretty big step. On top of that, you know, Russia's been looking to find inroads to to sell its uh, its vaccine against coronavirus, the Sputnik V vaccine in Europe. And this has basically ensured that that won't be happening. I mean, in, in the Czech Republic, certainly, but definitely probably not in the rest of the European Union. In addition to that, Russia's state-run uh, atomic uh, nuclear power agency was looking to bid on the construction of a new nuclear power plant 
in the Czech Republic and uh, the countries announced that they are no longer going to be accepting that bid. So this was pretty damaging for Russia. And, and I have to say, I'm still somewhat confused by the Czech response, in fact, by going, going so hard so many years later on something that, yes, was a, a, you know, it was a pretty you know, devastating sign of how Russia views its smaller neighbors, but, but also something that happened many, many years ago. Maybe, maybe John has some ideas on, on, on the motivations here. Yeah, John, what's your take on that? Can you rack and stack for us how you think uh, Putin personally and Russian government writ large view the severity of Czech expulsions of diplomats and the usual exchange of expulsions versus things like the effect on commercial deals in Central Europe? Well, frankly, for me, good good for Prague. I think they did the right thing here. And you can argue, as you look back at our foreign policy towards Russia, is that we should have been tougher on some of Putin's activities much earlier. In fact, I remember being involved in the sort of tit-for-tat expulsions around the arrest of FBI Special Agent Robert Hansen. You know, the U.S. government found itself, right. you know, with, with, a, with a spy in its midst and wanted to punish the Russians. And they decided to throw out, you know, 50 Russian intelligence officers. Well, frankly, the, the number of Russian intelligence officers in the United States was much larger than that, whereas the number of U.S. intelligence people in, in Russia, for, it's not, this is not secret, was much less than that. So by throwing out 50 Russians, the Russians just threw out 50 Americans and ended up at the end of the day with far more intelligence officers in the United States than the Americans had. And so you know, we were trying to punish the Russians and we ended up getting the worst end of the deal. And I think the Czechs here did the right thing. It's a massive embassy in Prague. It's used to spy on the EU into Germany. They have lots and lots of intelligence officers. And I'm sure the Czechs, you know, in working with their EU partners in the United States, knew a lot of the stuff that they were up to. So rather than play, you know, this sort of piddly tit for tat game, they, they went much harder. And I think it makes sense. They, you know, having a smaller embassy in Moscow doesn't hurt the Czechs, but having a, a much smaller Russian presence in, in Prague hurts the Russians more in this case. So I, I think they, they did the right thing. They made it clear that this was unacceptable to them. Whereas if they had done much less, Putin could have seen it as, ah, this is just another slap. This is not something I have to worry about. Therefore, I can continue the same sort of activity. Sure. Now, uh, of course, the, the Czech government was hoping for, and I believe actively called for, similar responses from other countries in NATO, in Europe. A few have responded, but most have not. Michael, what do you think of the overall response from the others who have, in many cases, faced similar Russian actions in recent years? I think I think a lot of countries have come out sort of and, and vocally expressed solidarity. And I know Slovakia expelled, I think, three uh, Russian mm-hmm. diplomats. But, there, you know, there's also an interesting trend that's going on here. And this this dates back to the uh, to the Skripal poisoning again in 2018. I don't think, you know, a week goes by without uh, a country somewhere in Europe announcing an expulsion of Russian diplomats and, and and usually intelligence operatives who are involved in some kind of espionage operation. I don't have the, the tallies in front of me, but I know uh, it's it, this isn't the first, uh, it, these aren't the first expulsions in the last few years that the Czechs have carried out. Uh, the Bulgarians as well have, have been on a roll expelling, you know, uh, you know, every few months they expel 
a group of uh, uh, diplomats or people assigned to the, the, the Russian embassy in Bulgaria, even allies, uh, ostensible allies in the Balkans like Serbia have uh, uh, jumped on this uh, uh, seeming bandwagon and expelled Russians who have been deemed, who have been accused of, of carrying out, carrying out espionage activities in this, in this case. And I don't exactly know whether any or all of these are, are linked to some concerted effort to step up to Russian activities, but it's long been known and is now being publicized that Russia has, has devoted a significant amount of resources, espionage resources, intelligence resources to Europe. And there seems to have been a, a, a kind of rolling response following the, the poisoning in the UK in 2018 to try and put a stop to some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. John, let's look at this from another angle. This unit, 29155 in the GRU, is a hard nut to crack. It's presumably highly compartmentalized. It is operating in ways that may be consistent with long Russian and Soviet history, but is going after people who aren't necessarily on the top targets of anyone's assessment of a Russian foreign policy list. And there are so many other topics of intelligence interest in Russia, from troop movements to technological developments to the politics in Moscow itself. So if you're running intelligence collection against Russia right now, how are you trying to get inside this unit and to understand what its targets are, to understand even more about its modus operandi, and to try to get ahead of the next set of attacks that are almost certain to come? Well, the way we do that is the way we've sort of done it forever. And one thing that's that's changed in the last few years is reporting like Michael's and groups that are doing what we call open source sort of intelligence collection like Bellingcat are actually being able to sort of uncover and put in public some of the activities of these otherwise covert units. And so the U.S. and its allies will be using, you know, human sources, spies inside Russia to try to collect some of this. We'll be using, you know, electronic collection and cyber collection done by NSA and others to try to get a picture of what they're up to. You know, diplomatic collection, military collection, you know, it's, it's a mosaic that's put together so that we have an understanding of what they're up to. And if you've looked at some of the, re- the public reporting from the intelligence community over the last few years to include, it was included in the Mueller report, was included in the Senate report, was included in some of the DNI publications. We've had quite good insight into what the GRU, the FSB and SVR, those are the Russian intelligence services, what they've been up to in many cases. And our allies have, have done the same. And then you add on top of that, the stuff that a group like Bellingcat has done where they've used, actually, you know, they bought internal databases in Russia, you know, using sort of the corruption there to be able to get at things and done their own putting the pieces, puzzle pieces together, which has allowed them to uncover the activities of, of people like uh, this unit that was doing activities, trying to kill people in places like Germany and Bulgaria, trying to overthrow the governor of Montenegro and in the UK. So if you put all this stuff together, our analysts have you know a pretty good understanding of what the Russians are up to. And then you add to it, like you know, we mentioned this hit our historical piece here. The, you know, the the pattern is pretty consistent and pretty clear. 
And it's, you know, it's what we called active measures or political warfare. And it's unless you push back hard against the Kremlin, these kind of things are going to continue. If, if they see weakness, they will continue to push. And so that's why I credit the Czechs for pushing back hard, because we've learned over the last five to eight years that these small steps don't deter Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin. Let me connect those two things. You talked about U.S. intelligence collection on this target, and you talked about the strong reaction from Prague. Do you think that there is, in effect, some crescendo here happening that with all of these activities and with the strong reaction from the Czech government, that specific cooperation across intelligence agencies the United States government working with the Czechs, working with others across Europe, getting even more detailed in sharing information about this unit and sharing leads and sharing assets. Is that more likely going forward to try to build a more complete picture and respond to the threat? Well, absolutely. And as I mentioned before, I think Putin has hurt himself here by continuing to try to sow chaos in all of these countries, try to influence French elections and German elections and Brexit and U.S. elections and assassinate people in our various countries and and support violent groups and disinformation. He has sort of, you know, pushed and pushed and pushed so that as the U.S. intelligence services go around to partners and allies around the world and say, hey, we could use your help. Let's work on what the Russians are up to. They're going to increasingly be pushing against an open door. Because, you know, they now see time after time, no matter how much we try to work with the Russians, we try to push back lightly, we try to to re-engage or reset, if you will, it's not working. And therefore, I think, you know, increasingly, these services are going to work together and work together more aggressively to understand what Russia's up to and push back against the Kremlin in these kind of cases. So I think this is, again, Putin is hurting himself, you know, like I mentioned with Navalny by trying to murder Navalny, he's actually mm-hmm. made his domestic situation much harder. And by doing these things in all of these countries, he's making his international and foreign policy efforts harder. Right. Michael, you've you've looked at this as carefully as, as anyone across the evolution of our knowledge of this unit and its targets. Does the information coming out of Czechia let you know something that you didn't know before? That is, Does it actually move the ball forward to help you look at the kinds of people that we will learn have been targeted already or to to get ahead and even predict the the countries or the people who will be the subject of this kind of activity in the future? I think the the explosion in Czechia actually, uh, on the contrary, are more in line with what you might expect a unit like this to do in the midst of a uh, a new war uh, and unpredictable circumstances they were looking to undermine and this at least this is how uh, I understand it now looking to undermine Ukraine's ability to defend itself uh, by going after their weapon supplies now the fact that they were going after a European Union member that was not you know, directly engaged in the war, that, that I think is in part the, the cause of this very um, aggressive response by, by the Czech Republic. But it's, you know, in, in contrast with the Skripal case, which to me seemed like, uh, you know, almost a, a kind of mafia style revenge hit, 
these explosions seem more in line with what a, a, a group devised to carry out subversion and sabotage uh, would be engaged with. But I think what I mean, what it does show us is that there are a number of these operations that this unit has been involved in and, and the, the, the possibility that there are there are many more, I think, I think is real. And so, you know, we're always I'm always in the course of my reporting on the lookout for certain things that sort of bear the hallmarks of this group's activities. Obviously, there have been a number of suspicious deaths all around all around the world of, of, of Russians who have in, in one way or another defied the Kremlin. And, uh, you know, a number in the UK, there have been cases in the United States. Um, and so we'll continue to look at those cases to see if in, indeed this group or, or other groups like it within the Russian intelligence system might have been involved. John, what do you think? Do you think that this is a a harbinger of things to come, that we will see more of this kind of sabotage and even assassination because the price to Putin so far has been relatively small? Or do you think that something like this with what we have to presume will be the disruption of much of Russian intelligence activity in Prague and in Central Europe, does that actually give an incentive to pull back a little bit from this kind of activity? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I do think Michael is onto something here when he suggests that there's probably many more that have not been uncovered. Again, when you uncover these things and look at them, it seems like you knew all along or that, it, that, that there's weaknesses in them that everybody should be uncovering all of this. But I think part of the reason that you know Putin uses these things and has used this unit is because they've been successful. And you know the fact that this is only coming out now from 2014 shows that they had meant to keep this secret. And so there's going to be probably more of these things from the past showing up uh, that they've been up to. You know, the, the amount of, you know, assassinations or malign activity that, that we haven't uncovered yet is likely large. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't know, but I, I think Putin understands that there's now starting to be a price to be paid for these things. And so they at least have to start to consider uh, their activities going forward and whether it makes sense to to be aggressive now, uh, especially since there may be things that they worry about that happened in the past being uncovered that may even be uglier than what we've seen in the Czech Republic. Michael, one angle we haven't talked about directly yet is the United States. Do you suspect or do you have any reporting yet to indicate that this unit has operated in the United States or is likely to operate in the United States based on what we've seen so far? I've, uh, I've chased a, a few leads that, that have to do with uh, this group's potential activities in the United States, but I haven't come across anything definitive, and I certainly haven't nailed anything down. Um, there have been, there's been, been, been rumor and speculation, and, and some of the analysis that I've uh, uh, some of, some of the experts that I've talked to on this uh, have suggested that working in the United States for Russian intelligence operatives in general, uh, not just a, a unit like this, is much more difficult than it is working in Europe. The counterintelligence services in the United States are much stronger than in uh, any individual country in Europe, and so they they just have a freer hand to operate. In, in Europe than they do in the United States. There have been a number of cases of suspicious deaths of Russians in the United States that bear looking into, certainly. 
there's this interesting case out of Miami. The pandemic has messed with my perception of time, but I think it was in the last year in which an American government asset with ties to Russia was surveilled at his apartment complex. And so there, there's certainly every once in a while examples that raise suspicion come up. Uh, but so far, so far, I haven't been able to come up with anything definitive. John, let's close out with another step back to the bigger picture. Let's look at the way we as a government are looking at this entire picture of Russian behavior. We're looking at on-the-ground activity, obviously, in and around Ukraine. We're looking at the active measures of this unit and perhaps others, but we're also looking at the wider combined diplomatic intelligence effort to sow confusion, to spread misinformation and disinformation on everything ranging from U.S. elections to COVID vaccines. Do you see any evolution and learning going on in this overall Russian effort, or does it still appear scattershot to you as we go forward? Well, first, let me comment uh, on the on the GRU unit that you talked about and mentioned that are people looking into that unit doing other activity? The one thing I would say is, is it's probably important not just to focus on them and to think that that is the only unit that gets involved in these type of activities. The Russian intelligence community, if you will, is quite large and quite aggressive. And throughout their history, the internal service, the FSB, the external service, the SVR, and the GRU have been involved in assassination, liquidating enemies, Mm -hmm. disinformation, subversion, sabotage, all these things we've talked about. And so, you know, yes, researchers and journalists should dig into what this unit is up to, but it's not going to only be them. These services are competitive inside Russia. They want to appeal to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin uses his intelligence services as one of his key tools of foreign policy. And so I think we need to look at all of them. And then to go to the larger picture, one of the things that, you know, Vladimir Putin uses his intelligence services and these covert means because it's an, it's a, you know, it's a weaker, smaller power and they want to compete with the United States and do damage to the United States and the West. And so they have to look for asymmetric means to create power. It's like, it's like a terrorist group can't take on the, the U.S. army head on. So they look for soft targets and weakness to use against us, a small small power against a larger power. And so as far as the Russians are concerned, Putin always has to take into account that he is doing these things against, you know, the West, which is far richer and more powerful if it turns its attention to Russia. So he has to always be taking into account, if I use these attacks, if I use these pushes, I'm going to push and push and push as far as I can. But there is a certain point at which I go too far and I turn a much larger power against us. And so, you know, Lenin said famously in the Soviet Union, it's like when you use a bayonet, you you strike and push as long as you as long as it's soft until you hit steel and then you pull back. And so I think what's happening here is there's the beginning of Putin starting to see that his bayonet is starting to hit something. And he's going to have to then pull back and reassess and decide what's the best way to continue to to push and keep his enemies at bay. Uh, that may be different than he's done for the last five or 10 years. And we will leave it there. Michael and John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Thanks. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please help spread the word about the podcast by sharing it on social media, letting people know about it. Whatever strikes you to help us spread the word. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo Studios is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>